All right, you know, we should do some obituaries. Uh, we, we like to do these in our third segment, and there's a lot of people who have passed recently that we should uh, talk about. But at this point in time, I think we may save them up for December. when it, At year end, we may have maybe maybe one, maybe even two shows just devoted to the people who, uh, who we lost in 2012. But I do want to just mention in passing uh, the recent losses to the human race of, of Barry Commoner. Of, uh, of movie producer Jake Ebert, so we sh- worthy about ta- worthy of talking about uh, near do well Edward P Wilson, music man Hal David, messianic megalomaniac Sun Nung Moon, anti psychiatry psychiatrist Thomas Zaz, and the noted Harvard negotiator Roger Fisher. But you know what? We're not going to talk about any of those folks today. Because they each deserve a few minutes at least today, some many minutes, and we, we just don't have them. So we'll just postpone that and instead talk about something we talked about at the top of the program. The most curious uh, movie out there of late, I think, The Master. This film apparently cleaned up at the Venice Film Festival and is almost certain to produce a couple of uh, Academy Award uh, nominations, uh, certainly for Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and probably for the movie itself since now they have 10 choices up for Best Picture. This movie has caused a a bit of a buzz over the past few months because of the possibility that uh, it was going to take on Scientology and its founder, L. Ron Hubbard. Writing in the L.A. Times, Kenneth Turan said, Those expecting a muckraking expose of Scientology might be disappointed by Paul Thomas Anderson's superbly crafted new film. Though the master features an impeccable Philip Seymour Hoffman as a spiritual guru reminiscent of Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard, Anderson's interest isn't small-bore history. Instead, he's created a fictional meditation on the intersection of one man's need to be mastered and another's will to power. Joe Morgenstern in the Wall Street Journal said, Joaquin Phoenix proves extraordinary as a damaged World War II vet who becomes a cult leader's guinea pig. As this broken man entrusts his soul to the behavior-changing techniques of a charismatic Riddler, the very look of the film, shot on the same high-resolution 65mm film used for Lawrence of Arabia, asks us to see his tale as universal. Now we're hoping to bring Gary Chu on to talk about The Master, but it turns out he's a little preoccupied this evening, so we'll have to have him come on next week. But to quote from his review in the Sacramento Press... Lancaster Dodd, that's the spiritual guru, is well-off, well-educated, and has that sort of proper demeanor you'd expect from a symphony orchestra conductor breezing on stage, the orchestra having just tuned. Mr. Dodd also has a cause. Moreover, that's what he calls it, the cause. He's become wealthier through the sale of books he's written about the cause and stirred quite a coterie of serious people into it. It's the early 50s, and Freddie Quell becomes one of Dodd's disciples, initially because Freddie can mix the best damn powerhouse libation made of things you'd never dream should be imbibed by man or beast. Lancaster Dodd deems Freddie's intoxicating concoctions as first rate. Reading about this film in the California Aggie, Anthony LaBella said, Lancaster Dodd is a charming man who has a hypnotic way of talking to people. He describes himself as a philosopher, writer, and nuclear physicist, among other things, and the cause is what matters most to him. But he's not immune to his own outbursts, especially when his credibility is questioned. 
Mr. LaBella notes that Hoffman in particular is excellent as Lancaster Dodd, using speech and rhetoric that could influence a wary moviegoer into believing the cause, despite its unusual philosophies. He closes by noting the master is certainly not a film for everyone, but movie aficionados who are interested in fascinating characters and top-notch acting owe it to themselves to go see this film. Now, we agree, this is an interesting movie, but um, what really fascinates this correspondent is the portrayal on screen of Lancaster Dodd, something that, of course, uh, the critics were raving about, and per what I just read. Having heard tapes of and seen movies of Mr. L. Ron Hubbard in action, I would say that Philip Seymour Hoffman has captured him. But to be fair, I don't think the movie even begins to uh, do justice to this curious character. Now, on two notable occasions on the past in this program, we, we've run into Mr. Hubbard. When we interviewed George Pendle about his fantastic book, uh, Strange Angel, which we, uh, which I think we re-aired that segment on the show, what, three weeks ago, Mr. McMillan? I Yes, that was a fun one. Um, it's the story of how Aerojet General and Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory got started. Uh, Origins owed a great deal to a 22-year-old eccentric sci-fi aficionado in Pasadena named John Whitesides Parsons. We really can't recommend this book uh, to you highly enough. But somewhere in the middle of the narrative, while... Uh, Parsons is trying to get Caltech interested in building rockets, which he succeeds in in doing admirably. And we can say to no small degree that Curiosity rover that's currently tooling around on Mars's Gale Crater owes a debt to Jack Parsons. And we do too, actually, because it was our interview with George Pendle that led to our subsequently talking to uh, Ray Bradbury on this program, who also had an L. Ron Hubbard story to tell. Because, by way of review, when Parsons had a uh, sort of a bohemian community of sci-fi aficionados uh, and rocketry uh, aficionados in Pasadena, into this milieu strolled Lieutenant L. Ron Hubbard, fresh from the U.S. Navy. He was apparently involved in Satanism, and yes, read the book for details, involving that of Aleister Crowley, the notorious uh, British uh, mystic. He rewarded Jack Parsons' kindness by stealing his girlfriend, borrowing $10,000, which he absconded with to supposedly buy yachts, and which uh, Parsons sadly never got back. This also inspired a great story by Ray Bradbury, the noted sci-fi writer, about his fellow writer Hubbard, telling us about the night uh, when Hubbard introduced the concept of clear to the world. It was quite a spectacular uh, pratfall, by Hubbard, to which uh, the movie director Fritz Lang was anxious to come back and tell Ray Bradbury about. We'd also refer you to our archives for that fantastic interview with, uh, with legendary Ray Bradbury. But uh, we hope to bring someone on who can talk about uh, the subject of Scientology from the inside a bit. We're going to have to do some work on that one. But uh, I just think, to give you a bit of a flavor of uh, what I think is the Truly remarkable figure of Mr. L. Ron Hubbard, uh, charlatan extraordinaire. You can pop right onto Wikipedia and check out, for example, the military career of L. Ron Hubbard, from which I cannot resist quoting. From Wikipedia, the military career of L. Ron Hubbard saw the future founder of Scientology serving the United States Armed Forces as a member of the Marine Corps Reserve and, between 1941 and 1950, the Naval Reserve. He saw active service between 1941 and 45 as a naval lieutenant, junior grade, and later as a lieutenant. 
After the war, he was mustered out of active service and resigned his commission in 1950. As with many other aspects of L. Ron Hubbard's life, accounts of his military career are much disputed. His account of his military service forms a major element of his public persona as depicted by his followers. The Church of Scientology presents Hubbard as a much-decorated war hero who commanded a corvette and during hostilities was crippled and wounded. According to Scientology publications, he served as the Commodore of Corvette Squadrons in all five theaters of World War II and was awarded 21 medals and palms for his service. He was severely wounded and taken, crippled and blinded to a military hospital where he worked his way back to fitness, strength, and full perception in less than two years, using only what he knew and could determine about man and his relationship to the universe. The piece goes on. However... His naval service records indicate that his military performance was at times substandard and he was only awarded a handful of campaign medals and he was never injured or wounded in combat and was never awarded a Purple Heart. Most of his military service was spent ashore in the continental United States. He briefly commanded two anti-submarine vessels, the USS YP-422 and USS PC-815, in coastal waters off Massachusetts, Oregon, and California, and yes, I must tell you a bit about his command of those two vessels. It starts up by noting when he was given an opportunity to, uh, to carry out a 27-hour naval training exercise on a sub-chaser in New England, he fell out with a senior officer at the shipyard and sent a crim- critical memorandum to the vice chief of naval operations in Washington. The commander of the naval yard responded by informing Washington, that in his view, Hubbard was not temperamentally fitted for independent command and requested that Hubbard be removed in order to other duty under immediate supervision of more senior officers. So he wound up on the Pacific coast where he took a a sub-chaser off the coast of Oregon, at which point he claimed to have located an enemy submarine off Cape Lookout, 10 to 12 miles offshore. For two and a half days, Hubbard ordered his crew to fire a total of 35 depth charges and a number of gun rounds to target what Hubbard believed to be two Imperial Japanese Navy submarines. His ship was joined by the U.S. Navy blimps, K-39 and K-33, as well as a couple of U.S. Coast Guard patrol boats and a couple of Navy sub-chasers to assist it in its search for these suspected enemy vessels. This incident, not surprisingly, attracted the attention of the Naval High Command. Notes Wikipedia, although Hubbard claimed to have definitely sunk, beyond doubt, one submarine, and critically damaged another. Notes Wikipedia, his view was not shared by his superiors. Turns out that none of the other vessels or blimps involved in the search thought there were any subs out there. So next thing you know, Hubbard has got another sub-chaser down near San Diego, where his sub-chaser was to participate in exercises. Notes Wikipedia, on June 28th, Hubbard ordered his crew to fire four shells from the ship's three-inch gun and a number of rifle and pistol shots in the direction of the Coronado Islands off which the ship anchored for the night. Apparently Hubbard did not realize that the islands belonged to Mexico, nor that he, in fact, had taken the sub-chaser into Mexican territorial waters. The Mexican government complained, and two days later Hubbard found himself before a Naval Board of Investigation in San Diego. He was found to have disregarded orders by carrying out an unsanctioned gunnery practice and violating Mexican waters. He apparently claimed at the time he thought there might be another Japanese sub in the area, The Navy thought it was a passing, floating log. Anyway, I hope this gives you some idea of the guy we're talking about. We're going to do more of that uh, in the weeks to come, because he's one interesting character. 
All right, in the 30 seconds we got left, we just want to note that Felix Baumgartner is going to try and break the world's highest, fastest free fall records. He's going to do that on Monday with a live camera attached to him, and we hope that, uh, we hope that that goes well. Felix Baumgartner appears to be a completely insufferable character, but he is trying something extraordinary, and we're, we're keen to see how this pans out. We'll, of course, talk about that on next week's show. That does it for today's show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We're going to try and bring Matt Taibbi on the, in the weeks to come. We've just snagged a new book of his, which, uh, which looks awesome. And we're going to see if we can't talk to some of our friends down at the Planetary Society about what is going on over on Mars. The Curiosity rover is now showing the world what a lot of us have known for a long time. There's quite a bit of water on Mars, and it may still be shaping the planet today. More on that to follow. We'll see you next week. We're standing by. There's no